Hi, and welcome to Bread. John's Gospel features seven sayings of Jesus which begin with I am. And they serve a singular purpose, to emphatically reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is a series about these saints. They confront us with the real Jesus and they invite us to meet with him. Because the Christian faith is not primarily a doctrine to believe or a moral code to follow or even an experience to participate in. It is a person to meet. And our hope is that you would meet the living Jesus. Enjoy. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Raul. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, as Hannah mentioned, we uh, on our we have a group thread, and uh, we were kind of just throwing some numbers out of how many people we were expecting. And I'm kind of ashamed to say that I expected the lowest number. <laughs> I expected there would be 35 of you. So that's just, that's how much faith I have. Um, so if I, can do, if I can be up here, so can you. Um, I'm going to continue a series that we started two weeks ago. Uh, we started a series on the I Am sayings of Jesus. And as Hannah mentioned, there are seven uh, images that Jesus uses to describe himself. Seven being the number of completion and perfection. So it's like in these seven sayings, Jesus gives us a full picture of himself. He is in full view for us to see. We have a full presentation of Jesus in these I Am statements. And so if we're looking to know what Jesus looks like, what kind of God Jesus is, we can easily visit these seven sayings recorded by John. And John is an evangelist, and his aim, his purpose, is to show us who Jesus is and how his life and ministry reveal the love of the Father. John is writing to a primarily Greco-Roman audience, and this audience would have grown up with all kinds of gods, a pantheon of them. And these gods were more often than not emotionally unstable, uh, insecure, violent, pleasure-seeking, and detached. And the leader of this pantheon was a guy named Zeus. Anybody familiar with that name? Uh, well, Zeus was um, destined to overthrow his father and rule in his place. And so this is kind of the, the narrative lingering in the background for the audience that John is writing to. And John comes to them with a better story. His prologue sets up his audience for this story. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19 says that no one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, so Jesus arrives to make God known. He puts on flesh, and he's seen by eyewitnesses like John. And unlike the pantheon of gods with their infighting and disunity, 
Jesus reveals the Father by the Spirit, and the three exist in perfect unity, perfect love, and perfect equality. And John is writing to bring us in to that relationship. He's writing to bring us into that perfect love. And Jesus is the gateway into that life. And so today we're looking at Jesus the gate. And my hope is that we would meet with Jesus personally. Um, If you're familiar with um, kind of awkward stories in the Bible, we're going to read a bit of an awkward one. This is the scene where Jesus makes mud with his saliva, and he uses it to heal a blind man. You guys know that story? Um, That's where our passage begins. Jesus heals this blind man, and the religious leaders aren't too happy about it. And so let's get into it. Um, Adam is going to read our text. Let's give it up for Adam. Is this your first time reading ever? It is my first time reading ever, yes, yes. Wow. I've crossed the picket line. (laughs) (laughs) A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he's a sinner or not, I I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Oh, do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Then they hurled insults at him. And said, no, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Amen. That was great. We were right there in that scene. (laughs) This scene reminds me of the first black denomination in the U.S. and the story of its birth. In the 1780s, St. George's Church in Philadelphia was a place where blacks and whites worshipped together. And when the church hired a man named Richard Allen, who was a former slave, his preaching drew a lot of new black members. 
And as the church began to grow, so did racial tensions. The white Christians pushed for a segregated space, and without Ellen knowing, they set aside the balcony for the Christians, whereas before they were seated on the main floor. Alan came into the service with others to pray at their usual spot on the main floor. And while on his knees praying, white officials came and pulled them up from their knees saying, you must get up, you must get up. And among them, a man by the name of Mr. Jones reverently said, please wait until the prayer is over. Wait until I'm done praying and I will get up. But they insisted until every one of the black Christians was pulled up from the main floor. They had been kicked out of their sacred space. They had been pushed away. And from there, Richard Allen and others formed the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And similarly, the man who was healed had been kicked out of his sacred space by the religious leaders. He had been pushed away. The text says that they threw the man out. And John tells us in chapter 9 that this man was born blind. Jesus healed him. And when he's healed, people notice and they're like, dude, how, how did this happen? How did you get healed? And I, I imagine his listeners were expecting to, you know, hear something about a fancy new pill that was released. Or some grand angelic visitation. A magic wand that touched his eyes. But no, he's like, no, some guy named Jesus put mud on my eyes. My guess is he didn't know how the mud was made. Um, but the man presents himself to the Pharisees who refuse to believe him. And they bring in his parents. And they're like, all right, tell us what really happened. Was he, was he born blind or is he making this up? Is he being for real, and his parents, mainly because they're afraid, they're like, look, he's an adult, he's got his own Costco membership, you can ask him yourself. And so they bring the man in again, and they still don't believe him, and by this point, as Adam portrayed so well, this man is annoyed, and he begins to stir the pot a little bit. Some of you know about stirring the pot, right? Especially those of you who are eights on the Enneagram. You know who you are. So they have a little theological debate. They go back and forth for a minute. Then the debate hits a tipping point when the man says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what he's saying here is two-sided. It's an indirect challenge and comparison. He's saying, though you claim you are from God, you do nothing. Yet this Jesus, who you claim isn't from God, actually did something for me. And at this, he's thrown out. He's pushed away. He's kicked out. And you may know what that feels like. Maybe you've spoken up about an issue at work that has led you to being pushed to the fringes. Or there may be some of us who've been ostracized by family because of a commitment that we've made to follow Jesus. And that has been difficult. Or there could also be some of us who've refused to betray our convictions and we've lost opportunities. See, it can be painful because there's a sense of loss. 
What could be is lost. The potential for an opportunity comes to an end. The chance to reach the greener grass suddenly is taken from our hands. It feels like the potential for life is sucked out of a situation, doesn't it? It feels like hitting a dead end. And this is a backdrop for what Jesus is about to say. In the same scene, verse 7, he says, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. And if you're familiar with gates, you know that they're entryways. I got to spend some time in New York and did a lot of sightseeing. I went down to Battery Park and looked out at the Statue of Liberty. And it was tiny in the distance, but I imagine what it must have been like for immigrants from Europe coming on ships in the 19th and 20th century. I imagined myself in their shoes, what that must have been like, seeing that for the very first time. It was a powerful symbol. In a way, it was a gate, an entryway into a new opportunity, a new beginning, freedom, and a chance at the American dream. Or think about Paramount Studios. You know, it's got massive iron gates at the front. Its entryway is grand because of what it represents. The gate's an entryway into creativity, into another world, into storytelling. And gates can also be a negative image. Uh, Ashlyn and I have a dog. His name is Baby Puppy. It's his actual name. Um, we rescued him, and we were like, you know what? We're not going to get attached. Let's give him a generic name until somebody can take him off our hands. And so we called him the most generic thing you could possibly imagine, baby puppy. And that was seven years ago. And so here we are. But he, even, even baby puppy is aware of entryways. When we stand at the entrance of his groomers... We go to a healthy spot in Silver Lake. When we stand at the entrance, his heart begins to race, and his muscles tense up, and he tucks his tail between his legs, and he refuses to go in. But on the other hand, when we go to somewhere exciting, like uh, the park or my mom's house, he sprints from the car door and hightails it to, you know, the fun stuff. But Gates are symbols, they're entryways, they leave impressions on us and also on animals, which is why Jesus uses this image. And when Jesus says, I am the gate, he's saying he is the entryway. The entryway not into the negative, not into the groomers, but into life, into new beginnings, into a new story. He is the entryway into a whole new realm of living. And do you see what's happening in this story? The man who's pushed out, to the man who's pushed out, Jesus becomes the way in. When we lose out, when life has a way of pushing us to the fringes, when we are thrown out, Jesus comes and he assures us that he is the way in. But what is Jesus the gateway into? What is he the gate into? I'm going to highlight just a couple things that I um, picked up on just from reading this. 
And I think, firstly, Jesus is the gate into divine safety. In verse 8, he says, All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. If you've ever landed at LAX, you've heard a voice over the intercom. It's a recording by a woman, and the recording goes something like, don't give money to solicitors or off, who offer rides you know, at the terminal. And these are people who stand between the baggage claim and the pickup areas. And in some cases, they can be scammers who offer rides for less money, but really they're after something more. Their strategy is to stand before the exit gates where the real transportation and certified rides are. They want to catch travelers before they see the real thing. They stand in the way of what is real. And this is what Jesus is getting at, that there are solicitors who stand in the way of Jesus. There are things calling for our attention, our devotion, and it tries to knock us off course. It stands in the way of Jesus. And these can be things natural, spiritual, external, internal. And for me, there's an internal thing that stands in the way of Jesus. It's a voice that says, you're actually not that good. Some of us may be familiar with that kind of voice. It says, you're not cut out for this. It robs me of my confidence. It robs me of vision. It, it drains my faith and it drains my energy. It tells me I'm an imposter and it makes me feel like all that I've worked for is meaningless. It makes me feel like I'm a disappointment to others. It comes to rob me. And I think it's worth considering as we read this passage and we're considering these thieves and robbers, are there things standing in the way for you? Are there things robbing you? See, the man who had been healed had been robbed, robbed by these leaders, robbed by the brokenness of the world. But Jesus brings him into a new thing. And he does the same for us. And the good news is that even when we're faced with all the noise, all the temptation, all the soliciting that aims to take from us, Jesus makes his voice known. He makes his voice known. He says, the sheep have not listened to them. Why? Because they're listening for the real thing. They're listening for the real thing. Jesus makes his voice known. He builds up, he guides, he teaches, he corrects. He speaks lovingly because that is how he feels about us. And he speaks also through his word. He speaks to our inner being. Paul says that the Holy Spirit reminds our spirit, our inner being, of who God is, of who we are, and of his ways. And so the challenge for us isn't, Will we listen? I think the challenge is who and what will we listen to? Will we listen to the things that rob us or will we listen to Jesus? And for those of us who want to kind of grow in hearing God speak, the place to start is with what he's already said. Start with John's gospel, start with the Psalms. Read not just with your head, but with your heart, and invite Jesus to meet with you. 
when we make it a practice to listen to his voice, we know ourselves better. He tells us that when we feel like disappointments, that there's grace that abounds. When we feel or when we hear that we're imperfect, Jesus reminds us that we're actually beloved. When we're robbed and lost, Jesus comes to find us, and he tells us that he's going to put us back together. And so our safety and our well-being in this thing that we're all going for is in hearing his voice. It's in what he's already said, and it's in what he's saying right now. And so that is Jesus into the gate, or Jesus the gate into divine safety. Secondly, Jesus is the gate into our development. Verse 9 says, I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And the last time I spoke on this, in, um, when we were still in Los Feliz, I emphasized the saved part. But as I was reading this again, there's the, the latter half of the verse really resonated with me. I was struck by by the words, they will come in and go out and find pasture. And this image is based on a very common vocation from the time. It's one that we'll get more into next week. It's based on shepherding. And sheep had regular schedules, just like we do. In the morning, they'd go, from, they'd go out from the pen to graze in the pastures. Then at the hottest time of the day, they'd find some shade and drink some water. And when it cooled, they'd go out again and do some more grazing in the fields. But by the end of the day, they'd return to the pen and they'd do it all over again the next day. There was a regular coming in and going out. They'd come into the pen to sleep and they'd go out to eat. They'd come into the pen to find rest and they'd go out to graze. And I think this shows us something about the life that God offers. It's not one of isolation. We're not bound outside, vulnerable, left on our own, left to fend for ourselves. And it's not one of domestication. God isn't out to tame us. We're not bound to the pen with no agency or responsibility. We're not God's little cute playthings. But I think the life that God offers is not one of isolation or domestication, but it's one of development. It involves coming and going. See, healthy sheep can't develop when they're bound to one or the other. And neither can we. See, being bound to the pen is when our faith is revoked of all personal responsibility. It's the kind that blames others for our actions. It's the faith that relies on spiritual leaders and ideal circumstances. It's slow to trust God because it relies on certainty. It can tend to over-spiritualize even the most basic decisions. And it's often a consumeristic faith. But on the other hand, when we're bound to the fields... That is when faith can be unaccountable. It's unaccountable to God, unaccountable to others. It can be isolated, vulnerable, can easily forget God, and it's often individualistic and leaves God in the dust. But what Jesus imagines for us is a faith that's developed, 
that as we return to him, he gives us rest, he cares for us, and as we go out from him, we walk in confidence and go in his strength. See, he develops us. We don't just take, but we give. We don't just roam, but we go on mission. And at the center of this developed faith is Jesus. Because what marks the inside from the outside? Entryways, gates. And so whether our faith has looked like an outside faith or an inside faith, both need the person at the center. And that's where Jesus is. But I think that often we've confused development for domestication. We've confused discipleship with domestication. But discipleship isn't about being more tamed. It's about being more alive. See, healthy sheep live both in the pen and in the pastures. And so let's drop the idea that God is out to domesticate us, that God is out to tame and control us, and let's trust that God has given us the tools and the wisdom for, that we need for the day-to-day. See, Jesus did what the Father, what he knew the Father cared about. Paul did the exact same thing, and so did thousands of men and women throughout church history. And so we should be relieved that God isn't overbearing. And we should be relieved that he doesn't abandon us. But he goes with us. He develops us so that we can be fully alive. And so Jesus is the entryway into this way of being fully alive. And lastly... Jesus is the gate into a God-infused life. I'm going to read verse 10 from the First Nations version. This is a translation uh, by indigenous um, theologians written for indigenous communities, and it puts verse 10 this way. It says, Thieves enter only to take away life, steal what is not theirs, and bring to ruin all they cannot have. But I have come to give the good life. A life that overflows with beauty and harmony. And the thing about thieves is they don't allow sheep to fully develop. They they steal, they take away, they bring to ruin. And I don't think you need to look far to see that this is actually happening closer than we think. I was catching up on what was happening in Maui. And one story I heard was of a local Him and his family lost everything. Their home was completely destroyed. And in the following days, he was contacted uh, numerously by developers who wanted to come and buy up his land for a fraction of what it's worth. With no regard for him or his family or the community, they wanted to take what was not theirs and bring to ruin those who've already lost everything. And this is the kind of attitude that Jesus is criticizing here. Jesus compares himself to them, and he says, I won't do that. He doesn't come to take, he comes to give. He doesn't come to ruin, he comes to renew. And he returns to us what we've lost. We see in this story that Jesus gives the man back his sight. And more than that, 
But when he's thrown out, Jesus gives the man a place in this new realm that he's bringing in the kingdom. And what it shows us is that Jesus wants the ones who've been thrown out. To those he gives a way in, he, to those he gives more chances, to those who've never thought they'd be in a church, to the ones who felt too dirty, to the ones who've felt like they're disappointments, to the ones who are broken and battered, to the ones who thought, man, I've blew it. These are the ones that Jesus comes to be an entryway for. And he fills their lives with meaning, with purpose, with love, with peace. And he says, I am the entryway. You don't need to go looking any further. See, what he wants for them is more than just survival. He wants more than just the bare minimum. Another translation uh, puts it this way. It says, Jesus comes to bring real and eternal life more and better than anything they've ever dreamed of. See, he wants our lives to be big and wide, meaningful and whole. He wants flourishing and life that abounds, life that is full and overflows. And I often think, and I'm, I'm uh, kind of talking about myself here, but I often struggle to believe this. Especially, and I think it's, it's hard for those of us who've been around this for a while. We may have entered, you know, faith exciting, excitingly and full of energy, and our coming to Jesus may have been new and fresh, but maybe that's withered. Maybe the excitement has faded. Maybe we've lost our passion, or we've lost interest, or we've lost our fervor. And there may even be some of us that can admit, like it's written in uh, the book of uh, Revelation, that we've lost our first love. But to those of us, Jesus wants you still. He is the gate, and he beckons us to come in. And I think he loves us too much to let us have a mundane little faith. I think the band can come up now. I uh, recently heard a lecture about the outpouring that happened in Asbury in Connecticut earlier this year. You may have heard or seen some things about it. Um, but if you're not familiar with it, it's basically a movement that happened among students at a Bible college who were so moved by the Spirit during a chapel service that eventually took over the school. Students were praying and worshiping for hours, and the whole thing is recorded to have lasted 16 days. Classes were canceled. Christians from everywhere came to see what was happening. And people were healed. People came to faith. People were having powerful encounters with the Spirit. And surprisingly, unlike, you know, similar moments in history, this was well-ordered and organized. And amazingly, for the most part, it was student-led. And one story stood out to me as I was listening to this lecture. It was about 
It was of an older woman who lived nearby, and she wasn't a Christian. But she showed up to the campus chapel and approached one of the leaders, and she was like, he visited me, he, he visited me, he visited me. And the leaders who were hearing this woman say this, they, they were assuming it must have been a student who knocked on her door and said, come. And so they were trying to get a name. They were like, who, well, who was it? Was it this person? Was it that person? Was it Joe? Who knows? Like, who was it? And the woman turns and says, no, it was Jesus. Jesus visited me, and he said I need to come here. And she became a Christian that day. See, Jesus comes to those with no faith. Jesus comes to those with stale faith, wherever we may be. But I think what this passage shows us is that Jesus isn't boring. He's anything but boring. He's exciting and he's fully alive. And he wants you and I to be fully alive. And so we all wander, we have periods where we lose interest. But Jesus is near and he beckons us to come back to him. And so we're gonna make some space to just meet with Jesus. We're going to make some space to invite him to visit us. Um, we've got quite a bit of time, which is great. So I think what I want to invite us to do is um, we can stand. And if you're comfortable, um, because there's not many of us in here, which is great for this, but I'm going to invite you to just spread out a little bit. Find a spot that, that you feel comfortable in. and um, The band is gonna play a song. And as they do, I wanna encourage us to just tell Jesus where we're at. Maybe, we are feeling, maybe we're feeling robbed. Maybe we're feeling pushed out. Like, we've, like something's been taken from us. Or maybe the, the thought of him developing you is exciting. Or maybe you've been around this thing and faith has gotten a little bit stale. And, and you want to return to your first love, who is Jesus. And so wherever you are, I invite you to just invite him in. Say, come Holy Spirit. And then um, we will pray for people at the front. But let's just spend some time worshiping Jesus and uh, inviting him to meet with us.